tough for me. And I, and, and I just want you to know that I too wrestle with God just like you all do. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into it. God, I want to thank you for just being you. And, and I want to thank you for the gift of community and the gift of faith and the gift of just togetherness and, and what that looks like. God, you have blessed us with each other. I pray that we would recognize that blessing every single day. And as we discuss your word this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts, reveal what's going on in us, do a little work, shake some things up, take us out of our comfort zone, or even maybe for some, we need to have a little bit of peace. So whatever it is this morning, God, I pray that you would pour into the soul, the spirit, and the heart of everyone sitting in here. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock, my redeemer. Amen. All right. We're only going to look at one verse today. So, Wes, I didn't even take the zucchini, so if you could put it up there, that'd be great. John chapter 14, verse 1. It reads like this. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. These are the words of Jesus. And there is a lot going on in this short little verse. We have finished chapter 13 with all of the things that were happening there. And then Jesus speaks these words. And it's very, it's very poetic, isn't it? Don't, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's just, it just kind of flows off the tongue. But in the original language, it's, it's more, listen, stop worrying. That's, that's the literal interpretation. Jesus is telling them, stop, stop worrying. Because this is right after he has just unloaded all of these things on them at the Last Supper. He is not talking to people who have no worries right now. He's not talking to a group that are just skating through life and everything is going great. He's talking to his close friends, his, his family, who are far from being relaxed, far from being calm and trouble-free. I mean... Imagine what Peter's thinking right now. In chapter 13, Jesus told him he would deny, Peter was going to deny Jesus three times. So in the immediate future, Peter has just heard that he is going to disown, deny knowing his friend, his Lord, and his rabbi three times. This has to be an incredible weight on him. Could you imagine what he must be feeling like? Surprise and embarrassment and hurt, and maybe, maybe even some fear. And we could, every, everything points to the fact that the rest of the guys heard this. Jesus didn't tell, the, tell him this in secret. And so, just tell him I'm a little busy, thanks. Um, so, so, sorry. <laughs> so, so there must be an, a tremendous weight on all of them. One of their leaders is going to deny ever knowing Jesus. Three times in the very near future. That's got to stress them out a little bit. And the fact that one of them, one of them is going to betray Jesus. These are not easy words for the disciples to hear. This, these are not easy things for them to begin to process. And then add to this whole situation that Jesus tells them, listen, like I told the Jews, I'm going to tell you, you're going to look for me, you're not going to be able to find me because I'm going to a place where you cannot come. 
these, these 12 guys, they have left everything to follow Jesus. They've left their families. They've left their friends. They've left their jobs. They've left their faith communities to follow Jesus, this radical rabbi who people want to kill. The Jewish leaders want him dead. They're hunting him down. They have left everything to follow this guy. And they've probably burned some bridges in the, in the world of, of you know, what is normal discipleship or what is normal religious instruction. They made the choice to follow Jesus, to be his disciple to learn a new way of living life. To learn a new way of engaging the kingdom of God. And now he drops his bomb on them, tells them, hey, you know what, guys? Where I'm going, you can't come. This, this is devastating news to them. This is the rabbi abandoning disciples. This doesn't happen. The disciples are sent after they've reached the point of of being mature in their, in their journey of faith. And the rabbi blesses them and then releases them. The rabbi doesn't leave them. You must be thinking, what in the world is going on here? To be separated from our teacher, from our rabbi, from our Lord. Man, this is, this is not what we signed up. I mean, they, they've, they've, come, they've come to a celebration. They've come to celebrate the Passover. This is a, a very deep religious occasion for them. They're celebrating, they're celebrating what God has done for the people of Israel. They're celebrating freedom. They're celebrating being um, the, the miracles that God did to, to release them from Egypt. This is, this, is, this is like their Christmas almost. I mean, this is deeply, deeply spiritual and, and important for them. And, and Jesus, he, he talks, he, he just drops all of this, this stuff on them. They would have never expected to hear these words. This is not what they've come to hear. And they must be, they must be anxious and scared and uncertain. What in the world? What is he talking about? What is going on here? We've come to celebrate and he just, he just dumps all of this stuff on us. And Jesus must see it in their faces. He knows what's, what's in their hearts. And he tells them, Stop worrying. Very direct, very matter of fact. Stop, stop worrying. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Just stop worrying. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Don't worry about it. Trust in God. Trust also in me. It would seem to me that John, the writer John, he understands that faith in God or trust in God and faith in Jesus and trust in Jesus. They're not two, not two separate things that take place. You don't have one without the other. It's not just a combo platter. Jesus is the physical revelation of God here on earth. Colossians says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Everything that Jesus is, everything that he taught, everything that he did is a reflection of the heavenly father. And so to have faith in one or the other isn't an option for John. In fact, he, I believe that he, the way he's writing this is it's impossible to have faith in God without having faith in Jesus. Jesus will say, let your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust me. He's encouraging them. Trust in him. 
as well as trust in God. And it's in that trust where they can begin to move from a place of having a worried and troubled heart into a place of, of seeing much more clearly. Now, what I think is very interesting, and as I was thinking through this, it's one thing for these disciples who have grown up Jewish, who have studied Torah, who know the creation story and know the history. It's one thing for them to have faith in God. They have been taught the things of God. They know what God has done for, the, for their people. They have learned the miracles. They celebrate those things. They're celebrating Passover when, when, when God put the plagues on Egypt, those amazing things that Moses did to bring them out of the land. And that how he killed the firstborn. I mean, these are just amazing, awesome works of God. And it would be easy for them to have faith faith there. But, but now Jesus is saying, have faith, have trust in me. This is, this is something very different. Jesus is asking them to have trust in him like he is God, like he is the Savior, like he is the Messiah that the prophets spoke of that is going to come and usher in God's kingdom. But it doesn't look like what they expected it was going to look like. And But Jesus is still saying, you, you have trust in me. It's a difficult thing to get their minds around. Well, Peter, Peter's going to deny him. Somebody's going to betray him. What's going on here? How are we supposed to put trust in that? Jesus is calling them to trust in very extreme circumstances. These are not just the everyday things of life that these guys are going through. He is calling them to trust in extreme, extreme circumstances. And I believe he calls us to that place too, to trust, to trust. And this goes beyond our our little Christian platitudes that we just like to throw out there, you know, let go, let God, and, you know, God works all things for good. I know that's scripture, but, I mean, so many times I call those the coffee cup verses. You know, they fit really nice on a coffee cup or a T-shirt, and they make us feel so much better. And, and as Christians, many times we will throw those things out at the most inappropriate times. This goes, this goes way beyond that. Jesus is asking these men to trust him at a time when everything is falling apart around them. And Jesus asks us the same thing. Everything that you've planned for is falling apart. How you thought it was supposed to go, it's just all coming unglued. Things are not working out, and you just don't think you can take one more breath or one more step or even just get out of bed anymore. It's in that place that Jesus says, let your heart be troubled. Trust me. Trust God. Also, trust me. In the darkest of hours, Jesus says, trust me. You know, I have to wonder if hearing these words, the disciples, they were just flooded with with the, the words of Jesus, because Jesus has taught them a lot of things up to this point. And I wonder if this just rushed everything back to their memory. Like when Jesus said, I am the bread of life, that he is the one that nourishes, that he is the one that gives life. The old way of finding life or trying to figure it out is, is gone, that Jesus himself is life. And if you eat of this bread, you will never be hungry. 
or when he tell, told them that he is the light of the world. He is the light that was spoke, spoken into creation. He is the light that would open the eyes of the blind, that would free the prisoner, that would free the people that sit in darkness. He is the light that would allow the salvation of God to spread to the ends of the earth. Or when he told them, I am the gate. He who enters through me will be saved. That Jesus is the one that brings, that, that, that will rescue us, that will keep us from danger and destruction, that could bring healing and restoration. The very things that we look for in life, it's Jesus as we enter through him. He's the one that will bring those things to us. And then he will tell them, I'm the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for my sheep. Jesus understands that in order for his sheep to have real life, true life, he will have to give his life, not just in the way he lived on earth, but also in the ultimate sacrifice. Spreading his arms out on the cross. Dying. So that his followers can have life. And as we drift, as sheep do, it is Jesus that will guard and keep us and watch over us. Are all of these things flooding back into the disciples' mind when he just told them with Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live. Those that believe in Jesus will have it, possess it. Eternal life. Death will not touch you in the complete sense of the idea. Those who die believing in Christ almost pass through a gate into a deeper relationship with the Father. Death will not win. Are the disciples thinking of these things as Jesus just told them, trust me, trust the things that I've been telling you. And these are just some of the big ticket items. These are the I am statements of John, of Jesus that John records. In fact, just in a few verses, he's going to give us another one. But we'll look at that later down the road. But, but are these things just ringing in the disciples' ears to trust? To trust even though everything looks like it's, going, it's falling apart around you. To trust when it's just, it's not going well. You cannot understand why. Don't let your heart trouble so you know just kind of in my jet lagged state last week i'm just kind of mulling this over it really comes down to the sovereignty of god doesn't it god's god's and and it's funny funny haha or maybe funny funny i'm not sure i've been really wrestling with the sovereignty of god over the last few months just what what does it mean what's what's god's sovereignty look like in the context of our church of our community, of individuals? What's it look like for me in my life? I'm sure it was not easy for the disciples to hear the words that Jesus spoke to them. And not easy to trust now that that everything is going to work out. To try to make sense out of something that makes absolutely no sense. And to trust Jesus. Man, that's, that's not easy. Let's, let's just be honest. When, when things are crashing around, crashing down around us, trust. Just trust. That's, that's, that's a really difficult thing to do. But this is what Jesus calls us to as his followers, that we would trust when it's not going the way 
You planned it and it should. This is trust. Now, I may get into a little trouble here this morning, but that's okay. It's my first week back. I know you'll be graceful. Um, again, I want you to understand that I wrestle with the things of God. And it's my job to shake you up a little bit. Or it's my job to, to make you land in a place of going, this is why I believe, or this is why I disagree with him. And, that, and that's okay. And that's okay. Because the sovereignty of God at best is, it, if you really think about it, it's, it's hard to, to understand. It's hard to get our, our minds around. It's hard to, it, it's scary sometimes. If we're honest, and if we engage it, and if we just don't gloss over it. God's sovereignty means this. He is in full control of everything at all times in all circumstances. God is in full control of everything at all times in all circumstances. The sovereignty of God. He is perfect in power and strength and might and judgment. And his plan is perfect all of the time. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't get caught off guard. He doesn't oops. This is the sovereignty of God. Now, okay, so that means to say that God's original plan was derailed by sin. Well, that's just ludicrous. You've just dethroned him and you've made God not to be God. Or to say that he was surprised by what took place in the Garden of Eden. That, that when Adam and Eve did their thing, he was like, uh-oh, what do I do now? Jesus! And, and Jesus was the backup plan to a failed plan? That's ludicrous. To say that God was, was actually, no, we, that's not the sovereignty of God. And if we just stopped right there on just those two little ideas, that opens up an entirely huge can of worms for us. Let me give you the first worm that crawls out for me. So does that mean that God created, knowingly, willingly created a system in which he knew that countless numbers of people would spend and suffer eternity in hell? Mm-hmm. Not easy to, to, to get our minds around. But here's what I know. We cannot begin to fully understand God. We cannot begin to fully understand his sovereignty. We come at it at a very limited point of view. We're human. We're broken. We're messed up. And God is not some helpless spectator watching sin and suffering in the world like you would watch a car accident unfold and you can't do anything about it. That's, that's not who he is. And so then, then, okay, so does that mean we are free moral agents or are we not free moral agents? And are we in control of our destiny or are we are not in control of our destiny? And is it possible to like checkmate God in some cosmic game of chess and say we win? Well, I doubt that very severely, but I mean, but, but these are questions that just come to mind over God's sovereignty. These are difficult things to deal with. They're not easy ideas. Why would God allow and do the things that God allows and 
and does sometimes. We just kind of kick back and we scratch our heads like, oh. I've had, had the opportunity in, in the Czech Republic to visit a German prison camp called Terezin. And it was from World War II. And what happened, the Germans came in, the Nazis came in, and they took over. It was then Czechoslovakia. And they took over this town. They made a ghetto in the town. And they made a, a prison camp for political prisoners, uh, for Jewish people. And they, they would put them in this camp. Now, this wasn't a systematic camp where they would kill people. But this is the, the, the living there was not easy. It was very, very difficult. And I walked through this, this camp and I looked at, you know, they had a wall where the firing squad would kill people and you can still see the bullet holes and you can still see where people hung from the gallows because they still had those. And you walk through these tunnels and you're just like, oh man, there's like deep sadness here. I've had the opportunity to visit Dachau in Germany, which is a German concentration camp that was in Germany. And I saw the pictures and I stood in the place where, where mounds of bodies lay dead. Just men, women, and children, skin and bones in piles of bodies. And you're just like, oh my goodness. And you're standing right in that place. I walked through the gas chamber, which was like a big shower room. It was very nice, but it was where people were killed. I stood next to the ovens that burned body after body after body after body. And I am appalled by those images. And I'm thinking, how can God allow something like that to happen? And then let's, let's fast forward a bunch of years and let's talk about Rwanda and the genocide that happened there. All those people that were hacked with machetes and killed just because they were not the right, part of the right tribe. And you think, how can God let something happen like that? And, we're, and people were just like shocked by that. But then we kind of gloss over. In Joshua, when God tells him to do the exact same thing, and God says, listen, you need to kill all the women, you need to kill all the men, young and old, kill all their animals, and, and then I want you to burn the city. It's sovereignty. What, what is God thinking? Those are difficult passages to get our mind around. He's in control of everything. That's, I don't know about you, man, but that, that, that sets me on my heels. It makes me think. And then, okay, let me use this as an example. Mothers and fathers, aunts and uncles, are praying for our troops fighting in these wars, in these Muslim countries. And they pray for their safety. And maybe they pray that they kill before they be killed. Because you know what? That's what happens in war. People shoot at you, and you shoot back, and somebody is going to die. And they pray that their sons and their daughters will be kept safe and that they would get to the enemy before the enemy gets to them. But in those same nations where our troops are fighting, moms and dads and aunts and uncles are praying to God that they would protect their sons and daughters from the enemy, from us. And in the sovereignty of God, who wins? Well, God doesn't listen to Muslim prayers, right? Because they, don't, they, they have it all wrong. And we're the Christian nation, so God must, God must listen to us, right? In his sovereignty, he must listen to us because we kind of we know how this all should play out, right? Until you get to the story in Joshua where he's ready to go to battle and he comes across this man and the man is holding a sword and Joshua says, whose side are you on? 
Are you for our enemy or are you for us? And this man says, I'm for neither. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And you're on sacred ground. Take off your shoes. Neither? This is the angel of the Lord. And this is Joshua going to battle for the kingdom of God. And he's on neither side? Okay. God's sovereignty is in control of those situations. But I'm going to be honest. I, I don't fully understand it. It's hard to understand that God is in complete control of everything, all situations and all times, and see the things that are happening around us. Our definition of the sovereignty of God fits nicely within our definition of who God is and how we understand him. And that that feels good for us, man. That, That fits well. We're comfortable with that as long as you don't spend too much time thinking about those other things. Those, those, those difficult things that are happening around the world, those images of the children that die every day because they don't have clean drinking water or, or food. I mean, really? I mean, is it that simple? We don't have things figured out. Not even a little. We can't. His ways are not our ways. And to think that we do is ludicrous. Let me give you another example. I believe that Jesus is the only way to God. Did you hear what I said? I believe that Jesus is the only way to God. I have dedicated my life now to that simple truth, that Jesus is the only way to God. I believe that with all of my heart and soul. In fact, he's going to tell us that in a few more verses down the road in chapter 14 but I believe that we don't know all of the ways that Jesus is the way to God. And you know what's funny? We as Christian people, though I don't think we would publicly admit it, but we, we kind of know who's in and who's out. I mean, those people, yeah, I mean, that other religion, out. We're, but we're in. I mean, we, we, we got, because we got God figured out, right? We got him in a box. He fits nicely. We understand this. This way, we understand it. This, this way, and obviously he will honor that because we're the Christians. But if Jesus is the only way to God, which I do believe he is, we cannot begin to understand all those ways. Because if it's about saying a prayer and accepting Jesus into your heart, and then you have the Holy Spirit come upon you, and now you are born into the kingdom of heaven, your name is written in the book of life, that means that every baby that dies spends eternity in hell. Sovereignty of God in control of all situations. Ah, that's hard to think about. Or Okay, but Dennis, there's an age of reason. I understand that. It's a great excuse we like to throw out there and just kind of mix it up a little bit. It makes us feel better. But what about what about people with, with a, a mental handicap? Down syndrome. Boys and girls, men and women. What's their age of reason? Who gets to choose? You? Me? But in God's sovereignty, do you trust? Do you trust? It's not easy, is it? Things aren't black and white, are they? Just because we think we know God 
Don't become comfortable and arrogant and think you know everything there is to know about him because he is sovereign in all things. And we should be awed and floored by that and not arrogant about it. You know, what I find is very disturbing is that Christians in general are more aggravated and upset about the idea that all people will go to heaven. They're more aggravated about that than some people are going to spend eternity suffering in hell. Maybe we're focusing on the wrong thing. If God is sovereign, and I believe he is, he's in control of all situations and all circumstances at all times, perfect in power, strength, might, and justice, all of those things. I believe in his sovereignty. If he is sovereign, then we can only begin to scratch the surface of what that actually means. He is sovereign in all of his characteristics. He is sovereign in all of his attributes. That means he is sovereign in justice. He is sovereign in wrath. He is sovereign in eternal punishment and eternal reward. And he's also sovereign in grace, mercy, forgiveness. And so when we stand in front of and face the hard things in our life, I mean, not just the everyday aggravations, frustrations, uh, you know, you're impatient with this. I'm not talking about that. I mean, when things are just going really, really bad and you stand and you look those things in the face and it's just impossible for you to understand. You just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. Why would he do this? Why would he allow this? Why is he letting this happen to me? When you stand in those situations, when it's all falling apart, and then you go to the Bible, the Word of God, and and it just confuses you even more. And you start to read those stories, and they just don't make sense. It's in those times that Jesus says, Will you trust me? Will you trust me? And you know, church, I wish, I wish that I can make this easy for every one of you, but I cannot make it easy. You, as the individual, you have to engage it and you have to pray through it and you have to do the work. Work work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That you would come to a place, even when it's all falling apart, that that you would just take those words, trust also in me. You would begin to just let them change your heart. And I'm not saying things get easier. I'm not saying that, that you just automatically just paint the smile on your face and everything is much better. But trust that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. You trust those things when it's all falling apart around you. Because if you can get a hold of those, and I believe, what's the Bible say? Even if it's the size of a mustard seed, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Those are the words of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Savior of the world. God, I want to thank you for those words. But God, your word also tells us that faith is a gift.
So God, I want to pray faith and trust on each person here this morning. God, I want you to, I want your spirit to just fill their hearts with, with a deeper sense of purpose, a deeper sense of your spirit, a deeper sense of faith, that we would walk by faith and not by sight, that we would trust as little children trust, and that we would leave this place and change the world for the glory of the kingdom and for the glory of your name. God, I know that your word is hard sometimes. But your word also, Jesus, your word say, take my yoke upon you and be gentle in spirit. And so God, in that tension, I pray that we would not become too comfortable. But in that tension, I pray that we would find peace. Let's cling to those words. Trust God. Trust you. And it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.